Greetings and welcome to Unsupervised Learning. I'm Daniel Miesler, and this show provides content curation as a service with a focus on the intersection of security, technology, and humans. I spend between 5 and 20 hours a week consuming books, articles, and podcasts, and each episode is either a curated summary of what I've discovered in the past week or a standalone essay that hopefully gives you something to think about. All right, welcome to episode 192, starting with security news. So Ring has already partnered with over 400 police departments. And as you know, I'm sort of torn on this technology. Neighborhood watch can be a good thing in the regular world and can also be a bad thing. Technology tends to magnify both the weaknesses and the strengths of whatever exists in the regular world. So it can make neighborhood watch really, really great, or it can turn it into an absolute nightmare. The problem is you can easily start on the positive side you know, build it all the way up, build it all out and scale it or whatever. And then with a few legal policy, you know, tech changes and leadership changes, it could turn into the the nightmare version. Now, some say this is a reason not to do any of this stuff and not to build any, you know, surveillance tech or any of this kind of stuff like Neighborhood Watch, like Ring or whatever. But I disagree because I think we know someone is going to build this stuff because the market obviously wants it. People obviously want it. And the best way to know is not that Ring is selling. The best way to know that people want this is that Neighborhood Watch exists in the analog world before technology, right? The The fact that it's existed for all this time means that people want this stuff. So we, we need to understand these human desires and understand that they're going to manifest in technology. And that's why I think the best thing we could possibly do is build a benign version of these systems and make it so good that they win in the market to crowd out the evil versions. Uh, People are drawing comparisons between China's social credit system, which is actually multiple systems, and the Silicon Valley, you know, various app um, ecosystems that have integrated rating systems. They're saying that these ratings will eventually be used to make decisions about things that matter. And I'm saying, sure, but this has also existed throughout human history. Word of mouth, blacklists, etc., These are ways of extending the reach of a good or bad reputation that someone has earned, right? So if you screw someone over, you don't pay them back money or whatever, you know, you can write about that. You could put it in the newspaper. You can do lots of different stuff to extend that bad reputation. I think whenever someone points out the downside of a technology, we should ask ourselves whether that dynamic already exists in the regular world. And if it does, we should adjust our opinions accordingly. Doesn't mean we should definitely do the tech, or we should definitely not do the tech. But we should understand that there's an analog already for this in the regular world. Good example of that is facial recognition and watch lists. We already have the posters that go on the telephone pole to say, if you see this person, call this number. That's facial recognition. That's what that is, right? It's in the analog world, which means it's a thing that we already understand. So we accept it and we think that's normal. And there's no reason to, you know, rebel against that. But you do that in a better way with a little bit of technology, and suddenly it's the worst thing ever. And that doesn't mean the tech version will always be okay. It definitely, you know, it can cross a line, no question. But the point is we need to have that dialogue and not just react and thinking it's some kind of new risk when it's actually existed for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years. The Pentagon is worried that China will beat the U.S. in AI if we don't create a stronger link between the government in both academia and industry, which China is actually really good at. 
We basically need to move faster from edge concepts to practical implementations. But it's really hard to do that when you have all sorts of legal and ethical constraints that China doesn't have. Our caution and morality, in this case, are a definite weakness. The U.S. president spent a significant amount of time at the G7 summit arguing for Russia's re-entry into the group, blaming Obama for the annexation of Crimea, and talking about who, how Putin had been mistreated. U.S. counterintelligence experts are responding by saying the U.S. president seems clearly compromised. I'm not convinced that this exact thing is evidence that he's compromised in the way that they think. I, I do think he's compromised, but I don't think it's a matter of, like, Putin gave him a script and he had to say it at the place. I, I don't think that technique would actually work with him. So I think it's more like affinity and like seduction type situation with like a coercive undertone. But I don't think a brute force technique would work with him. I, I think it would be too obvious to tell if he was afraid. That's just my feeling. It's just intuition only. But there's definitely something going on when the president of the United States is advocating for Russia on the global platform. A bigger problem with Trump and Putin thing, and by the way, this is very much a security conversation about the compromise of a, well, the most important person in the United States. Um, it, it, I'm trying not to get into politics here. But I think the most important thing to think about here is the exact effect that I thought this would have, which it appears to be having exactly that effect, which is Putin is manipulating our president through whatever means, right? It could be like seduction or coercion or some combination in order to maximize the world's disconnection from the U.S. He's taking the U.S. out of the game as much as possible so that he can then say, when the world then lacks a leader and they're looking around saying, what are we going to do? He'll step in and say, well, I know what to do. Um, the U.S. has fallen off. The U.S. is, um, you know, they're crazy over there. You know, they elect bad presidents who make bad decisions when in the, the whole time in the background, he was the one pulling those strings making our president do crazier and crazier things, right? But now he'll say to the world, look, they're, they're crazy, they're erratic, they can't be trusted, they're dangerous. You need someone who can stand up to them. This has been the plan from the very beginning. I wrote this article in August of 2016, basically saying, oh, this seems to be the play. Now, obviously, I'm not an insider, and maybe, you know, this is the type of thing where when you don't have all the information, your conjecture can be, you know, off. But this is my read based on just a little bit, little bit of exposure that I have to that actual world and talking with people who have a lot more exposure. So in short, I think he's single-handedly managing the decline of the U.S. as a superpower. Really can't wait to read the book of what happened during this time that we're currently living in, right? I mean, the book is being written right now, but it won't come out for a while. Chinese spies are becoming increasingly active in the United States. This article is amazing. <clears throat> you want to click through that. Um, this is a member version, uh, actually, of the podcast, though, So, which means the show notes, which is the newsletter, is only for members because it's an even episode, 192. But um, yeah, they're actually using LinkedIn to find targets. They're going after not just ethnic Chinese, but pretty much anyone. And uh, they give a few examples, a really good piece here. Alex Samos did an interview talking about how ready we are for election interference in 2020. And Jack Dorsey's Twitter account got hacked, which is weird because he's the CEO of Twitter. Looks like it was through an attack on his mobile number, which remains a weakness for Twitter and many other services. 
I think we should be able to lock down our phone numbers the way we lock down our credit. That would be cool. I think the problem there is you can easily lose your phone and your SIM and, you know, how are you going to prove that you own that phone number? Um, so maybe that's why it hasn't happened yet. But I think it's pretty needed unless we can migrate away from the phone as um, the primary 2FA factor. Uh, there's an argument that cyber insurance companies are contributing to ransomware attacks by paying to get companies back online. This is why I think we need more economists in InfoSec. These incentive models are fascinating and quite important if you want to understand why we're actually seeing certain outcomes. Um, I was at the CISO summit in Vegas and I asked the question, you know, do you think we need more economists in InfoSec? Uh, I don't know. I wasn't happy with the response. They were like, oh, you can't really put a dollar amount on vulnerabilities. Thinking that because I mentioned economist, I meant economy, which meant money, which means I was trying to quantify risk. That's not at all what I was asking about. I was asking about the interplay of incentives, where when you turn a knob or you, you pull a lever to make some sort of policy change that you think is going to help, like in this case, paying ransoms, you often get an externality, which you definitely do not want, like uh, ransomware becoming a very lucrative business. So that's why I think we need more economists in InfoSec. DARPA wants to build software that could detect misinformation at scale. That sounds like a really fun project. Advisories, Windows 10. There's a pretty big patch out. You want to get that updated. Breaches, uh, Imperva had a breach of their cloud WAF customers. And XKCD had a forum breached with tons of, uh, tons of hashes released. I'm not sure if they were um, protected properly. Might have been pure MD5, but they might have been actually protected with like uh, Bcrypt or whatever. Companies, Axonius raises $20 million to get into the asset management space. Well, they're already in the space, but they raised $20 million. And uh, so they're joining um, BitDiscovery. My buddy uh, Jeremiah Grossman already has a company in the space, but uh, space is definitely heating up. Technology news. Amazon's about to launch a new feature that can transcribe audiobooks into text. And book publishers are freaking out, I think, justifiably. Everything evidently hinges on whether an audiobook reading is a separate piece of art from the original book text or whether it's basically just the person reading the book. Therefore, it is the same art. Therefore, it's an infringement. So I, I think that's where the battle is going to be. And I'll definitely be watching it closely. I, I would love to just buy the audiobook, get the transcription and be able to read that somehow. Seems like cheating, though, which I guess is the whole point of the lawsuit. BMW has created an X6 in Vanta black, which is the color so black that it basically appears to be like a black hole. You, you just, it looks like a dead space in the world. Like you look into it and just pulls light in and doesn't escape. It's quite interesting to look at. Um, even on video, it, it's powerful. I've never actually seen it in person. Um, reminds me actually of this show. What was it? Attack the Block. The aliens actually had this. Anyway. The entrance of Disney Plus and other video services which compete with Netflix is likely to respawn media piracy. People are willing to pay for content when it's cheap and easy, but if you lose either of those, it's not cheap or it's not easy, it, they'll just go back to getting it for free. In this case, we're losing easy because when, I mean, you're adding cog cognitive load to the consumer. So they're like, oh, I, I really want to watch this show. 
Now they have to think, oh, out of the five services that are available, do I actually have the right one? Um, you know, am I subscribed? How much is it? It's just, they'd rather just go steal it. Um, and they don't even consider it stealing it. And I have to say, I'm a little bit, I don't know. I, I share their pain, right? Um, I, I understand that give, making the customer do work is not a good business model. Google is killing its new hire platform, which it launched just two years ago. I'm not sure when they're going to figure out that it's not cute to run experiments like this anymore, right? That, that's a kind of a 90s thing. When they launch a product at this point, you know, people start using it. And every time they kill it off, they make people want to use their new products even less because they're just going to think, well, they're probably just going to kill it off again. So why should I even try? I mean, that that's the trick. You're investing in a new product, right? It takes effort to get out of your old one. It takes effort to migrate. It takes effort to, you know, maintain that, that platform. And if you are worried that they're likely to kill it off, even if there's like a 25% chance, you're less likely to even get in at all. I, I have no idea why product managers and management over there haven't figured this out. This is like so obvious. Although then again, I mean, I just got an alert. I, I've got an article that's, um, that's trending right now or going viral, whatever, about um, cybersecurity, um, hiring techniques, basically. And I get an alert that says, you know, over 500 people have looked at this article. Um, they call it a, a media alert. Now, you would think that it's because it happened soon or recently, right? Like within the last 10 minutes or the last hour. But no. This is actually an alert for the day before. So they ran a batch process to generate a report, but they call an alert and they send me a thing that says alert, but it's for the previous day, run as a batch job. Now, I, I sent this to them like three or four years ago, and I'm like, hey, this is not an alert. This is a report. They're like, well, what do you mean by alert? Oh, it's something that's really important and it just happened recently. They're like, hmm, interesting. Interesting concept. Yeah, we'll think about it. Four years later, nope, same thing. This is why their game service will fail. This is why they're all their social media services failed. It's because they built amazing products, but they have no idea how regular humans interface with them. Uh, I got a really good algorithm here for spotting clickbait, which I think is crucial. NetNewsWire has relaunched its RSS reader. I'm actually a Feedly user. I'm pretty deep into Feedly, but I really hope this does well because I think RSS, if it were to make a comeback, would be really good for the world. RSS connects consumers with creators directly and removes the abstraction and filtering that happens in an aggregation service. It's a bit of a chore to maintain and to set up and all that, but I think it's pure. I think it's worth it. And I really hope they do well. Tesla is going to start offering car insurance. Musk says that they can make money doing this because they have better data and because their cars are safer. I love the fact that he's doing experiments. At least everyone knows it's an experiment. Human news. Adidas, Adidas has signed Ninja as their first professional esports athlete. This is relatively soon after he left Twitch to stream on Microsoft's Mixer platform, which I've not messed with yet. I've only done Twitch. I have to go check him out over there. 
Netflix show called 13 Reasons Why may have caused a 29% rise in suicides among 10 to 17-year-olds in the month after it was released. This is according to a study. It's a show about a young girl who kills herself and leaves behind 13 recordings describing the reasons for why she did it. Um, turns out the suicides were mostly boys, and the, the increase in the girl suicides was not statistically significant. Incredible, 29% rise. You have to wonder what the marketing people and the producers and directors and everyone thinks about this. Um, yeah, evidently it's a great show, like really well done. It's critical acclaim and all that, but the impact, goodness. Um, yeah, I feel like there's a lot more to say here about art versus life, life versus art. I mean, at one point, art is supposed to affect you in this way, right? I guess the problem is you're exposing it to children. Right, art is supposed to be powerful like this, but things that are powerful we basically shield from children because of their power. And I think that applies to drugs. I think it applies to sex. I think it might apply to ideas in some cases. And maybe this is an example. A study finds that it's, it's extreme experiences that are linked to meaning, not just positive or negative experiences. This matches my theory that hormones magnify meaning especially in youth when you're full of hormones and going through puberty. So basically everything then that happens is extreme. I think this is why we lock in our favorite things at that, at that time. I think the, the presence of hormones basically is linked back to evolution and they basically, um, they temper ideas and concepts and thoughts and feelings. So if you watch star Wars or star Trek or, whatever, Wolverine, um, whatever you're into. And uh, you see that while you're going through puberty, while your body is full of these hormones, right? All your crushes are way stronger. All, all the things you like, you know, nunchucks and karate and, and Barbies and everything that you like is magical. And I think hormones, because of evolution, are the direct tie to that magic. Later on when you're older, not only have you had more experiences, but you're just not running around, you know, violent and horny, right? And because of that, because of the lack of hormones, new experiences don't imprint on you as much. Totally just not even a theory, it's a hypothesis, but I'd love to run it by someone who knows the space. The Pentagon is looking to redouble efforts regarding veteran suicides, and the rates are actually rising rather than falling. I think the place to start is with not sending more people to fight wars that we shouldn't be fighting and where we don't even know what victory would look like. Maybe we start there. As a veteran myself, I am disgusted that so many people have died in Afghanistan and Iraq. The moment we leave Iraq, it's going to fall to Iran. And the moment we leave Afghanistan, it'll be like we've never even been there. What a waste. There's a whole lot we could have done with those trillions of dollars with the lives of those who died. We think 9-11 was bad, but over 6,000 veterans killed themselves between 2008 and 2016. I think we should be ashamed. I think it's unmitigated disgrace, and it's not even over yet. Evidently, NASA just made Pluto a planet again. I know someone who's not going to be happy about that. Suicidal thinking, severe depression, and rates of self-injury among U.S. college students more than doubled 
Over less than a decade, the rate of moderate to severe depression rose from 23% in 2007 to 41% in 2018, while rates of moderate to severe anxiety rose from 17.9% in 2013 to 34% in 2018. This is why I don't agree with the Pinker stuff, or I don't agree with the Pinker conclusions, right? If he's saying all those things are better, yes, they are. 100% agree. I'm not, you know, challenging his data or his research. These trends right here indicate that something else is wrong. And uh, he didn't address that. And that's why I think his conclusion is wrong, even though his data are correct. It looks like millennials are going to get crushed by the next recession even more than other generations. It's because they graduated at a certain time and walked right into a recession. They've effectively lost around a decade of wages, leaving them quite vulnerable to disruptions in the economy. I wonder about the Z. Or is it Z? Yeah, Z. The Z generation that's coming in after. I think right now Z is in high school or getting out of college. I can't remember. I have to look that up. But um, people keep thinking millennials are super young. They're not. They're in their 30s and getting close to 40. So, yeah, the young people now are Z. And then I don't even know what the one is after that. But Z shouldn't be having kids yet. So I don't think that one's named. Um, let's see here. Uber and Lyft are proposing a 21-hour minimum wage for California drivers. But it's actually just a ploy to avoid a more strict piece of legislation that would stop companies from abusing contract workers. Such a law would completely crush Uber and Lyft since their business model depends on pretending that contractors are not critical to their business. And Iran continues to put women in jail for not wearing the hijab. And most recently, a woman was put in jail for 15 years claiming that she was promoting prostitution for not covering her hair. Ideas, trends, and analysis. Day one skills that cybersecurity hiring managers are looking for, which is my new essay on what tasks new security hopefuls need to learn if they want to get hired. Um, yeah, this is the one that's uh, doing well on Twitter or whatever. It's um, I, I wrote a piece a long time ago saying explaining why we have a skills gap. What, how is it that you can have so many people looking for jobs and they can't find them? And you have so many hiring managers looking for cybersecurity people and they can't find candidates. And I was like, well, here's the reason. The reason is that the jobs required to be effective inside of a security team are really you know, quite extensive. And they're not entry-level positions. And that was the name of the piece. It's like there aren't any entry-level positions in cybersecurity. Now, a few people... Um, Infos like Taylor Swift, um, a, a bunch of my friends in industry basically said, well, oh yeah, Michael Coates from, used to be at Twitter, basically said, look, it's not that there aren't entry-level positions. There are some companies that actually do this correctly, uh, and it's similar to the military. So the military basically will zero to a hero, right? So they bring you in not knowing anything. They teach you how to ride a tank or whatever. So there are companies that do bring you in like that, like you're a level one SOC analyst um, or you, you're you on the support team or whatever, and you slowly spin up and eventually after like five years or whatever, you, you are solid. The problem is that security is so hot, that's a big risk for companies to do. 
And also startups don't have time. They barely have, you know, they're, they're barely sure they even want a security team until you get to a certain size where you basically have to have one. So it's really hard to pitch to a hiring manager. Oh yeah. Train me because they are basically on fire and they need someone who could start on Monday and be useful. So what I did in this piece, this new piece is basically lay out the common tasks that I've seen just dozens or hundreds of teams actually implement over and over as part of their daily work. So it's things like um, configuring a new um, security appliance. It's things like doing a quick audit of, of something, doing a quick security assessment of something, uh, writing a security tool. And I've got a few examples in there and I break down the steps and basically say, look, if you are able to show any sort of competence in these skills, when you're on the phone with a hiring manager, and you can demonstrate it through the conversation, you can demonstrate it through, you know, writing online or blogging or whatever, or you could demonstrate it through uh, GitHub. So let's, let's say you're going down the developer angle, and you're like, look, I write tools, um, I can already, you know, write tools, obviously, because I have all these things on GitHub, do you want to talk about any of them? If you have a hiring manager who's like, oh crap, we need someone to write tools, boom, you're hired. Why? Because one of the things that they need to get done day to day, you're already good at. And that is the entire point of this piece and the entire message that I have for people trying to get in is you have to be useful on day one. So really importantly, you need to know what these people actually need for someone to be able to do on day one. And that's what I created was a, a list of those tasks that um, are extremely common across security groups globally. Uh, definition of a green team, a proposed definition of a green team and how it differs from red. So this one uh, came from a few conversations with some colleagues in uh, InfoSec. And uh, basically there's this thing called uh, the InfoSec color wheel, which April Wright came up with in a 2007 Black Hat uh, presentation, which I thought was really cool. The green team that she mentioned didn't quite match the one that I'm, I'm hearing and seeing most. And that's what I wrote about, which is basically, um, it's using offensive techniques similar to red techniques, adversarial emulation, basically, to find things that would not be normally found by regular pen testing or by regular vulnerability assessment. And then systematically going through the entire org at scale and fixing those issues. So a lot of that has to do with getting with the people who build, right? People who build Linux boxes, um, people who build cloud systems, Docker images, Kubernetes, uh, <laughs> Kubernetes um, systems, anything where you have the ability to influence the creation process. And you go and you prune or harden the vulns there so that they don't um, you know, show themselves in the real world. And that is uh, really powerful. And that's what I believe the best definition is of the green team based on some conversations with some, uh, with some smart folks and basically a bunch of research. Uh, Elon Musk says humans are basically a biological bootloader for AI. That's a great way to put it. Can't say I disagree. I think when we find other life in the universe, it'll be synthetic with a mostly ceremonial likeness to the biological creatures that brought it into being. Personal assistants like Alexa might become much needed friends to the elderly in the future. And this uh, story actually shows that it's happening already. Basically, imagine if you could make these 
these systems, these personal assistants conversational. So it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to hit a threshold of natural interaction and believability for someone who's elderly and is lonely. Um, just as with most uh, most things AI, the advantage is being able to do the same thing over and over without tiring, right? Whether it's looking at like splotches on your skin. In this case, it's having conversations about normal things, right? Listening to them tell stories and saying, uh-huh, at the right time. I mean, that's terribly useful. I mean, you have these people sitting in these homes alone because people have abandoned them or they've died. They're just alone. They have no one to talk to. I, I think this is a fantastic use of AI. I think Google's canceling of Google Reader was a major factor in the fake news problem we currently have. I'm not saying we wouldn't have arrived here anyway, you know, at some point, but I really miss the days when people were following their sources directly rather than waiting for algorithms to show them things they'll probably like to see. And the Anna Karenina principle. So this principle basically says that um, there's lots of ways to fail. And if you have any of the failure sort of issues or characteristics, you will fail. And if you succeed, it's because you had done everything right. Something like that. I think it's powerful. Discovery, excuses for learning curl, how to use Amazon SES to send email alerts. Mr. Robot's final season starts in October. I'll definitely be watching that with the Oscar winner. Um, data visualization catalog. This one is awesome. It shows a tiny little thumbnail of basically every type of chart and graph that you can imagine, and along with its name, and then a little bit of detail about it. A visual mapping of malware techniques mapped to the MITRE attack framework. A New York Times interactive piece on American art. I love New York Times interactive. It's just really, really nice. And this one is fantastic because it, it's about art. But basically you scroll and it's kind of like a, an interactive movie. It's just insane. You scroll the other way and it goes backwards. It's awesome. All about AWS security monitoring, logging, and alerting. A visualization of how the Enigma machine encrypted text. This thing is insane. And it's got a live code interface. So you can change actually how the code works. How to seriously lock down your Twitter account, like Jack Dorsey. Um, how to turn off motion blurring on the top six TV brands. Awesome asset discovery. A list of awesome asset discovery services. This thing is really, really cool. And hash catch pulls Wi-Fi handshakes off nearby networks. Updates. Yeah, so this is a new theme for the newsletter um, in a slightly different structure for the podcast since the podcast is the audio version of the newsletter and the newsletter is the show notes for the audio. So they are sisters. They are identical virtually. Um, I actually say a lot more in the podcast, as you might have heard today, than I do in the newsletter. But um, yeah, let me know what you think about it. The goal is to make it cleaner and more attractive to the eye. If you're into such things, let me know how I did, either in the Slack channel or by replying to the campaign. And again, talking about the Slack channel that's on the member side. Um, so basically, if you're a member, you get access to the Slack channel and all that good stuff. Uh, my buddy Tom Nom Nom did an epic streaming talking about his various OSINT tools and how to use them to do hackery things. And the video is now on YouTube. Got a link to that. And I'm rereading Algorithms to Live By for our book club, the member book club, Unsupervised Learning Book Club, this month. 
And I also downloaded Where the Crawdads Sing, which is a highly decorated book. I think it's New York Times bestseller. It's a fiction book. It's got two different timelines, evidently, that mix together in a really creative way. So probably read that this month as well. And recommendations. Find out if any of your top personalities or favorite people or whatever have Twitch or YouTube presences and go and subscribe to them and maybe even get like notifications. This new medium is extremely personal and content rich, and you'll be surprised how much you get out of it. It is really fun to, to watch someone on Twitch just sit there and kind of do their thing because you learn a lot about them. If, you know, basket weaving, banjo playing, hacking, makeup, whatever it is they're into, you can see how not, not only the actual facts that they're giving you, but you're just noticing several other things they do. Oh, why do you pick up things with that hand? Um, like watching Tom Nom Nom, for example, in Vim, like I'm, I'm a huge Vim person. You probably already know that, but seeing what he does differently from what I do. And if I catch something that he does that I didn't know about, I'm just super excited about it. And it's probably not the thing he's actually describing because the thing he's describing is probably, you know, fairly known to me. But it's the other casual things that's not even, you know, part of the presentation that I tend to get the most from. Plus, if it's a live stream, you can interact with the person. I bought a bunch of money just just uh, yesterday, actually, so I can give it away to people. Um, oh, yeah, my, my buddy Jason told me about this guy named, was it, Mr. Beast, who gives away money. So I, I bought a little bit of money to just give to people who are streaming. I didn't really want to do it with Tom. Uh, one, I didn't know how to. But two, I don't know, just what it seemed weird. I really want to do it for other streamers who I just sort of stop in on. Maybe I don't know at all and just drop them you know, 10 bucks or whatever. I think it would be really cool. And the aphorism for the week, a genius is the one most like himself. A genius is the one most like himself. Thelonious Monk. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unsupervised Learning. And don't forget that the show is both a podcast and a newsletter, so you can get more information about everything you just heard by subscribing to the newsletter or reading the blog posts for each episode. Also keep in mind that I do the show weekly, but if you're not a member, you're currently only getting every other odd-numbered episode. And if you want to get every episode of the podcast and newsletter, you can become a member at danielmeisler.com slash subscribe for less than a latte per month. Being a member will also get you access to the subscriber area of the site, which is the home for all previous member episodes, as well as other types of premium and experimental content. We'll see you next time. Thank you.